guys, it's Tats here from Castagra, and you're listening to Specify, the Building Materials Innovation Podcast. The goal of this podcast is to help the entrepreneurs and the innovators who are making a positive difference in the building materials, coatings, and construction industry. Each episode, we'll tap leaders and experts from inside and outside the industry to provide the mental tools, skills, and insights to make an impact. Today's guest is Sean Williams of Carbon Design and Architecture. Carbon Design and Architecture is an architectural design studio that focuses on innovative entrepreneurial solutions and creative sustainability for the build environment. Sean, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Seth. Pleasure to be here. Tell me more about your background, Sean. So I'm an architect in Florida. Started probably back in 2000, working with a medium-sized firm. Got an opportunity after I graduated college to work with a large firm, doing interesting projects around the world. And then towards the end of seven or eight years of that, decided to start my own practice back in 2012 and have been studying the entrepreneurship of architecture since then. Great. Okay. What got you into that originally? Was it always the plan? No, I um, actually wasn't. Ultimate plan was to go into the military, Air mm-hmm. Force. I was studying to be a pilot. But unfortunately, because of uh, medical conditions, I didn't qualify to get in. So I had to think right after I got out of high school about what I was going to focus on. And I remember having a conversation with my family about what, what else we could do and focus towards on a career. And... Yeah, you know, we got to talk about you know how I was creative and I like to do drawings and why not take a shot at doing something like architecture or engineering. So, long story short, I took a few classes in there and really got intrigued with the idea of uh, problem solving and being in the creative market. Very nice. Now, I think you're also involved in some. I think a research center you created on uh, biomimicry. I did. Yeah. So while I was part of um, my last venture, we got introduced to the Biomimicry Guild. We got to participate with them out in Arizona and Biosphere 2, studying the ecologies and how nature solves problems and based on the ecosystems that they were in. The uh, relationship there and the, and the idea about innovation through nature and sustainability on a whole different level was really intriguing to me. So it took about, uh, I want to say that was back in 2009, about 10 years, I started to work with a local community college here. Sorry, a local college now. Was a community college. Was interested in doing uh, collaborative processes with professionals. We got selected to do a project with them that was under the Living Building Challenge, which is another sort of sustainability focus. But as we started talking about how we were going to develop the project and the ideas behind it, we were looking at biomimicry as that vehicle and describing it. And one of the professors out there, researchers, said to me, if this project doesn't really work out, it'd be interesting to see if we could do some other collaborative stuff. So about a year or two went by and we started talking again about architecture and biomimicry. And I said, well, I've got a list of 50 products that I think we could, products and projects that we could do through biomimicry. And so I started the Center for Biomimetic Architectural Research or BAR, as we refer to it, idea being that we would do a collaborative effort to develop, fund, and then also license technologies in that. Things like calcium carbonate that's made from a synthetic protein structure that we introduce into salt water 
and UV light. And as those things solidify and combine naturally, we could start to essentially grow walls or, or form block with a simple process of whatever this protein would be. Other ideas in that started to, I don't want to say faster, it started to bloom how that <laughs> into, into intriguing ideas behind bioluminescence and uh, fire resistance and acceptance of sorts, which has started to lead into other things, the medical field and, and how we can start developing that. So that's just getting into the beginning stages, which is really fun right now and sort of thinking about what, where the world could be. We haven't gotten into the serious part of how do we actually pay for all this stuff mm-hmm. to get out there in the market. But that's, that's something that we absolutely have on our radar right now to be done in the next quarter. Yeah, no, it sounds exciting. Now, for people that are not as familiar about this area, mm-hmm. maybe you can introduce us to sort of tangible things that are now maybe in the world or, or sort of people can sort of relate to sure. that utilizes this uh, discipline. Yeah, I, I would say what, you know, one of the oldest ones that you hear about uh, would be Velcro. Hmm. This idea of the individual who's walking through the, the field came back from his walk and noticed that he had all these seeds hooked to his, his shoes. And when he started looking at the microstructures, he realized it was this sort of hook structure on the seed that allowed it to attach to the clothing that was getting caught in the loops of the, the cotton. So as he started to investigate that a little bit more, he came up with the idea of Velcro, which we've been using for what, over 30 years? There's tons of ideas out there that folks are leveraging. Um, another company called PAX, P-A-X, started looking at how nature moves fluids and has been able to reduce wind resistance on fans and also applied it to boat motors to get that conical structure that nature uses to move fluids more effectively. Very cool. Now, what are some of the, the hurdles for adoption for these kind of cool concepts that you're exposed to? I mean, directly and indirectly. You know, in the architecture field, it, it gets real difficult because it's not a sort of proven concept or, or product. So it, it takes a really bold organization or individual to kind of move forward with this idea of biomimicry. So we, we try to step back a little bit and try to evoke it through a metaphor and then try to build upon that metaphor. In the case of St. College, we leverage the metaphor of the pine cone for several reasons. One being the idea that it, as the fire goes through the pine cone, it actually opens up. And as it opens up and the fire spirals through faster and faster, it throws the seeds off in a spiral direction, sort of casting out mm-hmm. other opportunities out there. So this notion of having this building that was on the campus that worked like a pine cone as people came in represented the ideas and knowledge the people leaving would then be the seeds that were sort of cast out in the community to educate and kind of grow these concepts in the environment. And then we started looking at things through the pine cone on how it was structured and the fact that the color was already innate into it. We weren't adding pigments to it. So how could we do a building that didn't have any paint on it? It was just whatever nature provided ideas of how do we open up the building through this thermal process? Is it got too hot? How, how would we expand it open? And it didn't always translate into this idea of having these leaves open up on the outside of the building, but it talked about sensors that we could apply and says, now we can open up the building because the environment on the outside was actually more beneficial than the environment on the inside. So it provided that same opportunity that you would have in nature. There was a sort of cause and then the reaction of opening up the building to allow fresh air to come through. Hmm. 
Oh, those are those are great ideas. And you touched on uh, working with bold organizations. Now, yes, in the architecture world, how do you identify or what are the characteristics of a bold organization? If you were just an outside looking in, usually an organization that is either invested in sustainability has impacts through, say, climate change. Your insurance companies, you wouldn't think that they were getting that bold, but they're, they're starting to expand a little bit as, as climate change becomes an issue. Looking at things within the built environment for a better, sustainable solution. You'll hear the word biophilia put out there quite a bit, which is an idea of the connection that we have to nature and, and the love of nature that we have. That was created by E.O. Wilson in a book that he had written is now sort of being brought in as a as a bold and innovative idea to bring nature from the outside in. Other cues in that, usually it's a company that's a little bit younger, looking mm-hmm. for innovative ideas that reflect its culture, you know, whether it be a, a just organization or a, a B corporation, the responsive certifier, uh, incorporated uh, projects or companies, sorry. Those are the companies that are kind of looking for the, the new and innovative ways, but they, they have a real strong call to sustainability and they're not just interested in the recycling and and the simple voc stuff they really want to look at bold ways of restorative design brand alignment with that position now what sort of sort of ready to go innovations in the marketplace really excite you boy that's an interesting question well if you're talking about biomimicry i think is, is it's available if we just take a moment to kind of step outside the environments that we're in and kind of look for how nature's solving some of these things. I mean, if you take the, the concept of say structured color, which is how butterflies get their color, it's not an actual pigment. It's actually a series of micro structures on the, on the butterfly wing that reflect and trap light in a specific pattern. So you get these beautiful colors, but it's not a pigment that's having to be grown or, or put into something. So I think that that's a technology that we could put out there almost immediately that would allow us to have different colors and color structure throughout everything from cars to buildings, possibly even clothing. There is a company out there working with the protein structure from spider webs Mm. to build clothing. I think they're a bolt thread, really interesting organization that has been getting a lot of attention as of late. For the they've done netted hats. They started with a spider thread tie, so they 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 entered it small. They started to perfect that that protein structure that they're that they're using for the threads, and now they're creating some really interesting, I think, buzz for biomimicry in general. You worked on different projects before, and I mean, is there one that really stands out from all the projects you worked on? Well, it stands out through sustainability, innovation, or or just, just in just general. In general. A few do. I think working with uh, HOK on the Dolly Museum, watching how that, that singular project helped develop a downtown area that's, that's been booming for the last uh, 10, 12 years and continues to keep going. That was a really interesting project. The other one at St. Pete College was the Green Demonstration Learning Center, which is the one that we were talking about previously with biomimicry. The idea that you can speak with biologists informing way about architecture and, and how they can literally start informing you about how biology works in your architecture could then operate for them. I think those were the two, I think, quintessential projects for me about community 
and innovation that, that stand out the most prominently. What about, uh, you know, within uh, projects, what's the toughest problem you had to face or like sort of the biggest head scratching sort of uh, challenge you had to overcome? Great question. <laughs> There's so many. It depends on what day you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, the, probably the toughest one, the toughest non-built one with the, the demonstration center was, you know, trying to determine how we would develop the structured color without having any real in, input on the microstructure of the butterfly wings and what, you know, what colors got generated. So we were looking forward to really getting into that and figuring out how that got developed without all the research that, that we're pouring into it now. Sure that, I think it's always just a fundamental on the built projects. It's about that communication between the architect and the owner and understanding the expectations and making sure that the expectations are, are met and understood by both sides. And it's from owner to owner, it's always unique. You could work on the exact same project. It could actually be the same owner, but different project spaces, and you'll have completely different complex communications between the two of them. Mm. Um, outside of that, you know, can you explain some of the sort of nuances to that? Yeah. So, for instance, you're trying to talk to them about, all right, we want to focus on sustainability. And, and because you're telling me as the owner, you want to have this building for 10 years and then you want to sell it. We want to be able to communicate through that sustainable notion about materials that are going to be resilient and last for 10 years. They always get compounded by the cost of those materials because either they're unique or not everybody's typically doing that. So when you start to talk to the subcontractors, they haven't worked with it before, so they're charging you a premium behind that. You're trying to explain to the owner that this is an investment for that 10-year opportunity, but all they see is, is this year's dollars, the net present value of what that cost is. Things like trying to get to net zero energy, which is something that we struggle with a lot here in Florida, trying to communicate that a building that you didn't have to pay power for is going to allow you to have a better operating budget. There will be still some life cycle costs with maintenance on the panels or the envelope enhancements that you've done. Any of the active systems are always going to have a cost to it. We want to focus on the passive design side of it first and then move our way towards that active function what kind of mechanical system are we going to do solar panels? Are we doing a backup battery? We want to get to those conversations, but a lot of times we get hung up on the cost of the extra envelope because they don't know, they don't understand why they got to pay so much for a thicker, uh, better performing passive solution first. Mm, interesting. Cause they're all sort of interconnected. They are. And trying to communicate that from the very beginning when you're trying to figure out, all right, well, what, what's the issue with this site? What's the issue with this project? And, and how do we, how do we tie all this together and make sure the, the great thing is when you have a client, a repeat client, like we've had, they already know where the, the beginning conversation is and they'll come to the table with some of those things already solved. Hey, on that last project, we talked about site orientation on this one, site orientation won't be a problem or it will be a problem. So we want to tackle that first. And by the way, we understand this is the system. We don't want to do that system on this building. We want to do a, a different mechanical system on this one. So, there's some dynamic structures and conversations, but at least on the second conversation, it's not as difficult. It just has different nuances in it. Mm. Okay. Makes sense. Now, I mean, as an architect and you know, being involved in so many projects, you know, you're approached by manufacturers and other sort of building material companies. Let's consider different materials. What do you look for in that? I mean, obviously you're evaluating new materials all the time. You're, you're looking at them, you're assessing them. What, what are kind of the, the check marks for you? and sort of considering new things to improve your process? 
first and foremost, we asked the question of, you know, is this something that we would put in our office? Mm-hmm. Is it something that we would use? You know, cause if we wouldn't use it, we, we're not going to recommend it. And there are some things we say, Hey, you know, we really want to use this material or, you know, how would we be able to use it and find out that it's not as uh, resilient or functioning as we thought it was going to be. You know, an example of that was we were looking at some really evocative corkboard for a feature wall that you know had some three-dimensional characters characteristics to it. We set it on a on a desk and everybody kept picking it up because they loved the look of it and the feel of it. We started to notice after about a week we were seeing little bits of cork <laughs> all over the counter, you know, all over the counter. And we thought, okay, well, all right, we like the idea of having a low carbon footprint or no carbon footprint. We like the resilience behind it. We found out later the lack of resilience behind it. <laughs> and we like the notion that it's a renewable resource. But the fact that it, you know, it was just a few weeks sitting on the desk and it was already starting to wear down, then that we started asking some other tough questions about hey, what is the durability in this? You know, if we have people walk doing the same thing where they're rubbing their hand across it like we're doing, because people are curious, they want to know when things are tactile and they look different. You know, what does that feel like? What is that? And then after that, we ask, is it responsible? Mm-hmm. Is it responsible in, in nature? Is it responsible in the built environment? And is it responsible financially? Are we asking the client to spend 5X, 6X on a material that we could find another one that has similar properties, maybe has a little higher carbon footprint, but still gets the job done. That's important too under the sustainability thing. We can't just have these really evocative things and not ask the tough question about, is it financially responsible? Mm-hmm. Yeah, makes sense. So you've been at this a while. I mean, at what point did you sort of feel like your sort of skill as an architect and or a business owner started to come together? Um, I don't think they have. <laughs> <laughs> Those are two different hats. <laughs> two different hats. Pick, pick them apart. Look at them separately. As skills as an architect, and then I guess you're sort of a, a business owner. So just look at those separately then. Yeah. One way to kind of, you know, pull back a little bit back in 2009, mm-hmm. I actually started a company for electronic health records. Mm-hmm. That's how I got involved with the entrepreneurial side, mm-hmm. talking with these folks that were starting out companies and, you know, how do you do valuations? How do you get the company out? What's a minimum viable product? How do you solicit that? How, when do you take the product too far? And when have you not taken it far enough? So on the, it got me asking those real critical ideas about what does it take to start a business? What do you have to manage as a business person? What are the types of problems that you solve? I wanted to solve that through architecture because in my mind, architecture and entrepreneurialism are the same thing. Albeit there's two different problem sets, right? So as an entrepreneur, you seek out problems to go solve because that's where the value is. That's how you, you know, make a company. There's an issue out there that nobody's solving. You, you can create a company and solve that problem. It depends on where that value is. And if you look at the architecture side, we typically wait till the problem comes to us in the form of a client that says, Hey, I'm a Acme company. We're growing at like three and a half percent a year. We see a, a strong growth. We try to look at it on architecture side about, all right, what does that really mean? All right, what is three and a half percent? Are they going to grow that way for the next five years? Is this their lifetime building or is this just a, a step to the next building? Are we solving their immediate problems? Or are we solving their problems? five years down the road. So that, that's where the parallels come in. The differences between the two are that business is rapid and decisions have to get made quick. And sometimes you don't make the right decision. And when you make the wrong decision, we'll, we'll, I'll classify it as wrong, but when you make a decision and it doesn't go the way that you thought it was, and we qualify that as wrong, 
we usually make a pivot and try to adjust to either correct it or address what the problem was coming into that, whether it's forecasting profits, whether it's understanding how we should budget for a project or just filling out a, an estimate for the project to our proposal. Did we get the numbers right? Do we have the right number of staff? Did we get it done efficiently? On the architecture side, it's, did we answer all the questions that the owner wanted? Is it poetic? Will it have a meaning outside of the owner that reflects the owner's brand or their quality or their culture? And then lastly, was it safe? And there's no real order in that. It, it has to be safe all the time, but we want a nice space that also safe and affordable to the budget that the owner has given us to work with. So you're involved in a lot of stuff. What are the top three habits or routines that keep it all together? Number one is communication. Yep. Constantly communicating with the people that work around me. Without that communication, you can't, you can't get ideas across, whether it be to the clients or whether it be to the staff. Secondly is just talent, making sure that the talent that you have surrounding you can help answer those real tough questions. On the entrepreneurial side, we've hired folks that we thought were the right talent fit and ended up going the wrong way, and we had to make a pivot, which are always tough. Mm-hmm. The third one, just find people that are smarter than you to learn from, to constantly be learning. I think those are the three things that I think are helpful. And by utilizing all three of those, you can come up with a pretty formidable company and answer almost every tricky question because you've either got the smart people in the room or you're communicating what the problem is, or you've got talent that are going to find what that problem could be down the road that you're trying to solve. So you've kind of covered all three parts of problem solving in my book. Yeah, that makes sense. What do you do when you're not working on a a project at work or (laughs) another venture? Or is that uh, so consuming that you don't have any other time? (laughs) No, yeah. if if I have time, that means I'm looking for the next business venture. (laughs) No, I I try to spend time with the family. Yeah. My wife, two daughters, working through architecture early on, I think spent a lot of time trying to develop the career and my my professional brand and everything. And now I'm at that point where I actually value the time that I get to spend with them. So I try to spend as much time with them outside of work as possible. I try to leave it all at the office as as difficult as that can be sometimes. But that's that's the ultimate goal. And then after that, it's trying to build that social network that helps find smarter people to learn from and, and kind of grow with. Yeah, that's great. Is there anything that I should ask you but didn't? No, I, I mean, um, so you know, we're seven people here. Yep. We've got a very diverse staff, which I think helps solve some significant problems. I think diversity, the same way that it works in nature with biodiversity, also works when you're starting an architecture firm or any business. You're getting lots of different inputs from different cultures and different perspectives. And I think that's important to to bring up with this with without this you know my staff here i don't think that we would not be as successful as we are today and we won't continue to be successful if we don't keep investing in in the talent and everybody that we've got working with us thank you sean thanks for sharing i'm sure people uh learn more about this area excellent I appreciate it. Thanks for inviting me to come on your show. So I want to thank everyone for listening to Specify. And I also want to thank the listeners specifically that are working hard each day to change the world to make it a better place. If you know anyone that would benefit from this episode, please forward it along and send me a note or drop me a comment if you have any feedback or suggestions. 
Tatkisi. podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.